You're still here? Even after the butthole surfers episode? Well, it looks like you and I are going to get on, and by way of reward for your remarkable patience, we're going to spend the next two episodes scrutinising a slightly more popular artist. Every once in a while here at Temporary Fandoms, we come up against an artist who has been so prolific, it's hard to know how we can begin to tackle their discography. But despite having nearly 30 albums to his name, David Bowie is not such an artist. His career is long, but it also comes in distinct chapters. The quality varies, but the narrative of his life work never seems to flag, so right up until the end, there's interesting stuff going on. At least, that's my hypothesis before we actually record the damn thing. As with our earlier Mercury episodes, we've recruited a roster of different hosts to guide you through this vast discography, so you'll hear a wide range of voices taking on each part of Bowie's career. As always, I recommend listening to this podcast on Spotify, where you'll hear it edited together with tunes from each of the albums we'll be discussing. The easiest way to find it is to visit our host's Beat Rehab. That's beat.rehab slash tempfans. And you can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash tempfans. That's the admin out of the way. Sit back and relax or stick us in your ears and go for a run. That bit's up to you. But do join us for our most ambitious episode yet on the mercurial British singer-songwriter, David Bowie. Hello, um, welcome to episode six, I think, of Temporary Fandoms. I'm already losing count. It just seems to be a blur. Thanks for still being with us. Uh, You know the deal by now. You know where to listen. Um, When you do go and listen in places, please click like, subscribe, etc., etc., etc. We've got a biggie for you. Um, we've done what we've done. Nick's pet project of the butthole surfers. Uh, we had an excellent Pogues episode. Uh, we had ESG. We we looked at the Mercury Prize nominees. And Nick, what have we got? Now we're going to do David Bowie. Yes, I have fought for this. When we got this at the start, I went, I want to do Bowie in the first six episodes, and it was like, oh, it's a bit of a big one, and. Um, <laughs> I'm feeling a little bit of pressure, but I think we're going to be good. We split it over two episodes. We've got multiple people, multiple contributors uh, coming in, each taking a different part, a different period of David Bowie. Um, in the order, I think, that we appear in, and the voices you will hear later, we've got Emily. Hey, Emily, how are you, and what Bowie are you doing? Hi, I'm doing good. I'm doing um, The Man Who Sold the World and Hunky Dory. Um, then I, oh, then we go to Ben, Ben Zimmer. Hello. How are you? And what are you doing? Hi there. Um, yeah, I have three albums starting with the rise and fall of Ziggy Stardust and the spiders from Mars. Got to get the whole title in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, followed by Aladdin Sane and pinups. Nice. And then finally, uh, tying up the episode, uh, we've got Lyle Wagonek. Lyle, what you got? I'm doing 74 through 76, which is Diamond Dogs, Young Americans, and Station to Station. Awesome. Um, those astute of you at home will think, wait a minute, what about the first two albums? Well, we gave those to Nick and myself. Nick, you have Space Oddity, I believe, mm-hmm. and I have um, Davey Bowie's first album, which we will be talking about later. Um, we're going to keep this brief. We're going to head straight over to um, all the introductions. Remember, if you're on Spotify, find the playlist and you can hear uh, selected tracks from all of these 
as we go. So um, catch you in a minute after this, where it'll be Nick and myself. Ziggy played the sax. He also played the recorder, the ukulele, the piano, and the tea chest bass. Well, young Ziggy did. The bow we know, or at least we think we know, grew up in Brixton, London. Davy Jones, no, not that one, loved Coltrane, Little Richard, Elvis. He was an artistic kid who loved music, dancing, and also the occasional playground brawl. He was a scrapper. Stitches, cuts, and grazed knuckles. After apparently working his way through every musical instrument in the school cupboard, he ended up graduating to the local skiffle jam scene, from scuffle to skiffle. Early attempts at forming groups varied through the Conrads with a K, standard rock and roll fair, wedding band, the King Bees, mod rhythm and blues group. They signed. Uh, Decca Records um, had the single Liza Jane, Lisa Jane, a lot of shouting, screaming. Could have been anybody, really. There was the Manish Boys, much more Bowie-esque name, and there's a jaggery vibe running through all of that. And then finally, there was the Lower Third. Yeah. None of these acts have really left a permanent mark on the history of music, but they can all be found on YouTube. It really is worth a listen if you have the time. But right now, here, we don't. As, as Davy Jones, yes, that one, gained fame and was moving from the stage to be a monkey, our hero adopted the moniker Bowie, apparently from the inventor of the Bowie knife. He released a few singles. I Dig Everything was okay, I guess. But his fourth single, The Laughing Gnome, should really have ended his career right there. Just imagine the worst novelty record you can. The one that only one of your uncles would dance to at a wedding while really, really drunk, as a hundred family members look on horrified. Yes, it was that bad. For UK listeners, let's just say Keith Harrison Orville taking a left at Mr. Blobby, going through Roland Rat. Yeah, it was that bad. Later on that year, he released his first full album, and this is where the story properly can start. It was 1967, it was self-titled. Looking back, history has not been good to this album. Bowie has distanced himself somewhat from this. Um, but it's curiosity, it's worth looking at. There's some good stuff in there. The opener, Uncle Arthur, is a cheeky cockney tale. Someone gets a bit bored at home, has a fling, but then finds out his new bit of skirt can't cook. So he goes back to his wife. I mean, this tale sort of reeks of what would later become regular fodder for early, mid, blur. Tracy Jack's bit of park life thrown in. We've also got Rubber Band, which is an exercise in a terrible pun writ large, though it addresses loss and sorrow underneath all this cheeky charm. In fact, the whole album seems to be a hark back to old-fashioned music hall. Arthur Askey, Lonnie Donegan, Under the Blackpool Tower Lights, Where's Me Washboard? But underlying everything here, Bowie seems to want to address serious and dark issues. We Are Hungry Men is a tale of fascism, infanticide, and cannibalism. 
Please Mr. Gravedigger is a murder ballad, decades before Nick Cave won plaudits for releasing an entire album of them. Made a Bond Street, damn fine couchy tune. And there's a lot more to be found if you just want to disconnect from what you think of when you think of David Bowie. This album came out the same week as Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. And at times, it does seem like he's echoing the more Octopus's Garden style Beatles. I, I'm well aware that was two years later, but bear with me. Than say, A Day in the Life. But if we're gonna spend time applauding David Bowie later in his career for being this musical chameleon, effortlessly shifting from glam to soul to new romanticism to drum and bass, we should also take time and allow him his Dickensian musical period. David Bowie, 1969. The cover features artwork by Hungarian op artist Victor Vazarelli, with a tussled looking Bowie staring out from the center. Our hero clearly wasn't happy with his debut because he also named his second album David Bowie. However, it was reissued as Space Oddity in 1972, thus clearing up any confusion, or creating more, depending how you look at it. Either way, it was a great leap forward for our fledgling star. Everybody knows the opening track, of course, and on the basis of that, you might go into this album thinking you'll find the artist fully formed. And while it's certainly not as excruciating as the debut, it's also easy to dismiss this record as fairly typical twee folk pop. It does, however, stand up to repeat listens, for me, the best tracks on the album come at the beginning and end. Unwashed and somewhat slightly dazed follows Space Oddity, a song reportedly written immediately after his father's death in 1969. You wouldn't know this from the lyrics, though, in which Bowie tells us he's a phallus in pigtails with blood on his nose. Take a moment to savour that image. Worthy of note, however, is that this was the first Bowie song produced by Tony Visconti, who'll be there right at the end of his career, and indeed the end of this podcast, when we finally come face to face with Blackstar. Enjoy it, because it's folk whimsy for the next few minutes. Side 2 opens with Janine, in which we hear Bowie do his best Elvis impersonation. Sadly, it's a bloated Elvis, even if on closer examination, the song does seem to involve axe murder. For the wide-eyed boy from Freecloud, the folk whimsy comes with incongruous musical bombast. It's pretty awful, but things are about to pick up with God Knows I'm Good, and the closing track, Memory of a Free Festival, which feels like the template to every acid-inflected anthem ever written by a 1990s British indie band. Bowie's not quite there yet, but this album is more than just an early curio, and probably deserves more love than it gets. The Man Who Sold the World, Bowie's third album, was released by Mercury Records in November 1970 in the United States and in April 1971 in the UK. Before getting into the album itself, I want to talk a little bit about the cover art. It features David Bowie reclining decadently on a chaise lounge in the Haddon Hill mansion where the band was residing at the time. And he's wearing what's been described as a quote-unquote man's dress with long blonde locks falling down below his shoulders. It's notable as the first in a series of moves really intended to exploit Bowie's androgynous appearance and really make it an intentional part of his image. The album was originally intended to be called Metropolis, 
making a kind of planned words on the Fritz Lang movie Metropolis. But the record company changed the name at the last minute, much to Bowie's frustration. Personally, I think Mercury probably made the right decision, but more on that in a minute. Stepping back a little, Bowie had previously achieved some notoriety with the single Space Oddity a few years before in 1969, but that album didn't really take off in the way that Bowie had hoped. So Bowie decided to try another tactic, and that's something that really marks early Bowie, I would say, this kind of relentless trying on of different faces, trying to find something that fits. So in this case, that different tactic was to form a band with Tony Visconti on bass and Mick Ronson on guitar, and after a couple of membership changes, Woody Woodmansey on drums, forming a band called Hype. In 1970, the band started performing in kind of almost superhero-esque costumes, prefiguring the Ziggy Stardust stage show from a few years later in a number of ways. Recording for the album itself began in April 1970 in London. As a bit of context, Bowie had recently gotten married to his first wife, Angela, and he was also going through some managerial problems, something that would happen actually again and again throughout his 1970s career. So this is all just to say he had a lot going on. There are varying accounts of how involved Bowie really was in the recording process for this album, but it seems, though Bowie is officially given credit as the composer for the record, that a lot of the music was probably at least partially arranged by Ronson and Visconti. Visconti has said that the band would often jam and write a lot of the arrangements together, and then Bowie would just kind of come in towards the end of the process and dash off some lyrics. Bowie, of course, has objected to the impression that he was detached from the songwriting process for this album, but that does at least to seem to be hitting somewhere near the mark from pretty much everyone else who was in the room at the time. So what are the results like? The previous two albums were primarily folk rock. In contrast, this album is really marked by a much heavier sound, much of it in the realm of hard blues rock and psychedelia. It's by far the heaviest thing that Bowie had done at this point, and I don't think it's a stretch to say that there are some Sabbath and even Led Zeppelin-esque elements in there. The record is also lyrically darker than Space Oddity. Madness and questions of identity and power are major themes on the record. One great example of that is on All the Mad Men, which was possibly inspired by Bowie's half-brother, who at the time was an inmate of Cane Hill uh, Psychiatric Hospital. But the track that I really want to direct your attention to is the title track, The Man Who Sold the World. It's almost buried near the end of the album, but if there's one track from this album that you should listen to, it's this one. If you, like me, were an American teenager in the 1990s, it's very likely that you first encountered this song through uh, the Nirvana cover on MTV Unplugged. That was the case for me. But I remember when I then first heard the Bowie original in my early 20s, it was a real revelation. I find that combination of Ronson's circular guitar riff with Bowie's heavily phased vocals and the just kind of generally spooky atmospherics of the song haunting and really riveting. Bowie's narrator sings about encountering a kind of doppelganger of himself on the stairs. The two get to talking before concluding, among other things, we must have died alone a long, long time ago. 
but it's really the last minute and 15 seconds of the song that are the kicker for me. The sounds of Bowie's odd, almost disembodied backing vocals floating in at you like they're coming from outer space, or from beyond the grave, or possibly from both. Bowie's next album, Hunky Dory, was released in 1971 by RCA. Cover-wise, this album continues the androgynous look that we saw on The Man Who Sold the World before that. We have a close-up of Bowie, long blonde locks swept down to his shoulders, gazing up past the camera like some kind of silver screen starlet. And indeed, Bowie apparently brought multiple pictures of Marlena Dietrich with him to the photo shoot, so that was definitely in the air. The process used to create the image, um, which was originally shot in monochrome and then recolored, adds to the almost intentionally anachronistic Golden Age Hollywood look of the image. The composition process for this album was a little bit different, particularly compared to the relatively hands-off process approach that Bowie had taken with The Man Who Sold the World. So in this case with Hunky Dory, Bowie composed all the songs for the new record on piano rather than guitar as has previously been done. As I said, there are some differing accounts of how much The Man Who Sold the World Bowie actually arranged, but when it comes to Hunky Dory, there's really no question. It's Bowie's songwriting on display through and through. That change in the composition process really shows on the album. So instead of the heavy, verging on almost metal-esque hard rock sound of The Man Who Sold the World, we get largely piano-driven melodic art pop. Ronson and Woodmansey continue on guitar and drums, respectively, and Trevor Boulder plays bass. Those three would soon, of course, become the Spiders from Mars, but that's a story for the next record. Rick Wakeman also appears on piano on the record. Um, I should note, Bowie did ask him to join the Spiders from Mars as well, but Wakeman said no and went on to join the band Yes instead. From the piano and strings uh, that form the introduction to the opening track, Changes, we know that we're in a very different sonic universe from The Man Who Sold the World. Instead of the guitar-heavy, proggy rock of the previous album, we get lush, melodic pop, centered around an irresistible piano rift. Appropriately, the song revolves around the theme of artistic reinvention, and it's been compared by um, by many to a kind of almost blueprint for uh, Bowie's career in the coming years. In the second half of the record, we get, among other things, Bowie paying tribute to some of his influences with a trio of songs, Andy Warhol, Song for Bob Dylan, and Queen Bitch the last of which was inspired uh, by Bowie's fandom for The Velvet Underground. Queen Bitch is particularly interesting, I think, because it's a kind of almost prefiguration of the glam rock sound that would characterize Bowie's next album, Ziggy Stardust. Not to get too dialectical about it, but I think you can see that sound as in many ways the child of the kind of distorted guitar-driven rock of The Man Who Sold the World, and the heavily-mannered, melodic art pop of Hunky Dory. Regardless of what you think of that theory that I just proposed, uh, Queen Bitch is nonetheless just a great song. It's centered around a great, trashy, almost proto-punk guitar riff from Ronson. And Bowie's vocals come across as somehow both arch and catty and streetwise and full of attitude. Again, a good model for the pose that he'll be taking on the next several albums. 
At the time, when Hunky Dory was released, it received generally good reviews, but it didn't really make a whole lot of waves. It didn't sell particularly well. And that's probably in part because the record company still kind of viewed Bowie as a sort of one-hit wonder at the time, and it didn't do a whole lot to promote the record. Like The Man Who Sold the World, Hunky Dory only really became a commercial success after the breakthrough of Bowie's next album, Ziggy Stardust. Next, we have three albums from 72 and 73, Bowie's peak glam period. If we were to break down the Bowie eras by hairstyle, and that's as good a way as any, then we've entered the proto-mullet years. In January 72, Bowie got a new haircut from a hairdresser named Susie Fussy, who would later marry Mick Ronson. Uh, Susie cut off his hippie locks and made it short and spiky up top, and then she dyed it red-hot red. Soon Bowie would go full Ziggy, with futuristic clothes and makeup to match that hair, inspired by kabuki style, like some cat from Japan. When the Ziggy Stardust album came out in the summer of 72, this new persona threatened to overshadow the actual music. But if we put aside all the image-making and the sci-fi mythology, the music stands on its own quite well. And you could actually think of Ziggy Stardust as a consolidation and continuation of the sound of Hunky Dory, Queen Bitch especially, with that heavy Lou Reed influence, provides a kind of blueprint for Bowie's transition to a glamier, guitar-driven sound. And once again, he's joined by the great backing band of Mick Ronson on guitar, Trevor Boulder on bass, and Woody Woodmancy on drums. No Rick Wakeman on piano this time, since he went off to join Yes. The messianic alter ego Ziggy Stardust fused together Bowie's loves for science fiction, cabaret, and everything in between. He found inspiration from all over. He came up with the Ziggy part of the name after his recent American tour when he first saw Iggy and the Stooges. And there might have been a little inspiration from the supermodel Twiggy. More on her later. The Stardust part was borrowed from legendary Stardust Cowboy, an oddball psychobilly act from Texas. And the name for Ziggy's backup band, The Spiders from Mars, may have come from a 1954 UFO sighting over an Italian football stadium, which turned out to be a swarm of migrating spiders high up in the atmosphere. Fun fact, Bowie would later play at that stadium on his Glass Spider tour. It's telling that Ronson Boulder and Woodmansey became known as The Spiders from Mars in real life too as the line between fantasy and reality became a bit fuzzy for Bowie at this point. So from a surely musical standpoint, five years might seem like an odd album opener, but in terms of the whole Ziggy Stardust mythos, it makes perfect sense. It introduces Bowie's framing device of people learning the news that the Earth will be destroyed in five years' time. And Bowie was a bit obsessed with that sci-fi imagery, even working it into other songwriting he was doing at the time, like All the Young Dudes, which he wrote for Mott the Hoople. Um, as Bowie explained later in a conversation with William S. Burroughs for Rolling Stone, All the Young Dudes Carry the News refers to that same apocalyptic news that's in five years. And in that conversation with Burroughs, Bowie also clarified that Ziggy Stardust wasn't an alien himself, but was an earthling chosen as a vessel by extra-dimensional beings, the infinites, except 
when we first meet Ziggy in Moon Age Daydream, he's calling himself a space invader, so maybe we shouldn't get too hung up on the details and instead just enjoy the music, like Mick Ronson's cathartic guitar solo. From Moon Age Daydream, we go right into Starman, a one-two punch for the ages. This might be Bowie and Ronson's finest moment, and their performance of Starman on Top of the Pops in July 72 is forever remembered for how Bowie coyly draped his arm around his guitarist's shoulder. Looking back on that now, it's hard to appreciate just how scandalous that moment was, but people made a very big deal out of it. And that was followed by another star-making moment, when Bowie pointed to the camera as he sang the line, I had to phone someone, so I picked on you, who, who. For my money, the most memorable thing about that Top of the Pops performance was Trevor Boulder's incredible two-tone mutton chops. This was also the moment when Bowie took the glam mantle from Mark Bolin of T-Rex, who gets a playful tribute from Bowie on the track Lady Stardust. It's hard to pick out the album's greatest glam moments. I mean, I'm partial to the proto-punk chug-a-lug of Hang On To Yourself, which again shows a heavy Lou Reed influence, as does Suffragette City. So Ziggy Stardust as a rock star avatar is at his peak there before coming to a crashing close with the Jacques Brel-inspired Rock and Roll Suicide. And after Bowie played Rock and Roll Suicide as the last song of the last concert on the Ziggy Stardust tour at the Hammersmith Odeon, he announced it was the last show the band would ever do. But it wasn't really the end, of course, even if Bowie wanted to kill off the Ziggy persona. The next album, Aladdin Sane, was inspired in large part by the U.S. leg of the Ziggy Stardust tour. In fact, Bowie would later describe it as Ziggy Stardust Goes to America. The title was a pun on A Lad Insane. And at least we can say that Bowie had upped his pun game since the days of The Laughing Gnome. Watch That Man sets the tone with the garage glam sound that came from Bowie trying to emulate the New York Dolls after seeing them on the U.S. tour. The title track is a bit more avant-garde with a jazzy piano solo from Mike Garson that pointed the way to Bowie's later experimentations. And he wrote Drive-In Saturday after an overnight train on the west coast of the American tour, and the lyrics imagine a post-apocalyptic world while also dropping various names like Twig the Wonder Kid. There's Twiggy again. Panic in Detroit, one of the album's best tracks, paints a dark picture inspired by stories from Iggy Pop. And Gene Genie, another highlight, works as an Iggy Pop tribute, while also alluding to Jean Genet, another pun. It's not all American influences, though. Time goes back to Jacques Brel, and Lady Grinning Soul has a flamenco sound to it. There's also a fairly heavy debt to the Rolling Stones in their Exile on Main Street Sticky Fingers era. Bowie probably would have been better off keeping the Stones' influence implicit, but he decided to include a campy, glammy take on Let's Spend the Night Together. And that cover, for better or for worse, pointed the way to Bowie's next album, Pinups. In the cover photo for Pinups, Bowie still looks like an alien, and he's posing alongside, wait for it, Twiggy. After Bowie had dropped that line about Twig the Wonder Kid into Drive-In Saturday, the two of them saw each other socially, and Twiggy's manager set up a photo shoot in Paris for Vogue magazine. Bowie wanted to be the first male model on the cover of Vogue, but after seeing the photo of him and Twiggy, he decided he wanted to use that for his next album cover. 
I may be talking a lot about Twiggy here because I'm not so eager to talk about the music. It's a bit of a disappointment after Ziggy and Aladdin Sane, but maybe he just needed a palate cleanser at this point. So he decided to pay tribute to the bands he listened to back in his London mod phase from 64 to 67. The Pretty Things, Them, The Yardbirds, Sid Barrett-era Pink Floyd, The Mojos, The Who, The Easy Beats, The Kinks. It was all recorded at a chateau in France that doubled as a popular recording studio. Uh, Elton John nicknamed it the Honky Chateau, and it's where Bowie would later record the album Low. Pinups was recorded over a few weeks in the summer of 73, and the whole thing sounds like a rush job, even if Bowie does seem to have a genuine love for these songs. As for highlights, his versions of Friday on My Mind by the Easy Beats and Sorrow by the Merseys stand out among the mostly pedestrian covers. Uh, Sorrow is really a cover of a cover, since before the Merseys got to it, it was originally done by the American group The McCoys, most famous for Hang On Sloopy. Speaking of sorrow, it's a little sad that this album was the swan song for the spiders from Mars and the end of Bowie's glorious collaborations with Mick Ronson, since the whole thing is kind of underwhelming. But Bowie was ready to move on to his next reinvention. I'm Lyle Wagonick, and this is David Bowie, 1974 through 1976. I consider 1974 through 76 to be the years that Bowie changed the most visually, personally, and musically. You know, in 1973, Bowie was still performing as Ziggy Stardust, the bisexual alien who came to save the world. But by the end of 1976, Bowie was running away from alter egos, drugs, and fame, and running towards Berlin. And Diamond Dogs, Young Americans, and Station to Station are the journey of a man searching for truth by diving headlong into cocaine, black magic, and fascism. The best place to start the story is a little bit after the beginning. When Bowie transitioned from his bright red mullet to a soft wavy pompadour and started introducing elements of soul and R&B into his Diamond Dogs tour, fans felt betrayed. The dystopian and fascist themes in Diamond Dogs made the music a bit darker. You know, I can only imagine it would be like if Billie Eilish started dressing like Nicki Minaj, sang R&B, and got really deep into QAnon. But Bowie always moved on once he got bored with the thing. And if you wanted to come along, you could join the journey. Bowie made albums the way you make bread. You add flour to water, let it react for a day, toss some of it out, add new flour and water, and you repeat the process. Aladdin Sane took the glam rock from the rise and fall of Ziggy Stardust, but added a bit more jazz and musical theater. Diamond Dogs kept most of that formula, but with less rock, and added more avant-garde and musical theater. Diamond Dogs was influenced by a lot of things. It was influenced by a book Bowie was reading on Goebbels, an incident with thugs on a Trans-Siberian train trip, witnessing totalitarianism outside of Moscow, fascism, a clockwork orange, and sex and drugs. And all of it was processed using William Burroughs' cut-up technique, in which text is cut up and rearranged to create something new. Diamond Dogs isn't 
1984 concept album, although Bowie did want to write and produce a 1984 musical that George Orwell's widow would not give him the rights to. One of my favorite songs on the album is We Are the Dead. It alludes to the scene in 1984 right before Winston and Julia are arrested, but nothing else is a direct reflection of the book. There's a moment in that song that I love where there's four notes that descend on a piano from the right side and then echoes loudly on the left through a Fender Rhodes organ. And it, it just sounds like a bugging system that's letting you know that it's listening to you. Bowie dabbled in soul music with the exploitation vibes of 1984, but it was really during the Diamond Dogs and Philly Dogs tours of that year where he incorporated more soul and more R&B. His versions of Rebel Rebel, Aladdin Sane, Gene Genie, and Width of a Circle were reworked. They included less guitar, but more sax and piano, and a more soulful delivery. You can really hear this when you compare his July 1974 cover of Eddie Floyd's Knock on Wood, which is from the David Live album recorded in Philly, uh, with the New Orleans funk version that's on Cracked Actor, which was recorded in September of 1974 in Los Angeles. Young Americans, to me, is a big contradiction of an album. It's groovy, it's gorgeous, and it's completely loveless. And the most romantic song is Can You Hear Me? And that's about a guy getting a lot of action on the road, but reassuring his lover that she's still his favorite. Now, Bowie was known for, quote, stealing from his influences. Fascination and fame are good examples of this. You know, in Fascination, Bowie took Luther Vandross' song Funky Music, which is about how Vandross can't resist the funk, and made it about how Bowie can't resist the cocaine. Fame is arguably the best song on the album, but it's an outlier. It's a sneering, cynical song, likely thanks to John Lennon's influence over a tight, spacey groove, thanks to guitarist Carlos Alomar. To continue with the bread metaphor, Station to Station is a six-song pop album with a bit of everything from Bowie's career up to that point. Bowie is still searching for meaning, and everywhere he looks for solace is a trap. And what's happening in these golden years? Running for the shadows. TVC15? His girlfriend sucked up into his TV, and he responds by praying to his TV to bring his baby back. One of my favorite songs is Golden Years. The chord change and rhythm were nicked from The Drifters on Broadway, and the riff was nicked from Cream's Outside Woman Blues and Wilson Pickett's Funky Broadway. There are unconfirmed rumors that Bowie wrote the song for Elvis, but I would have loved to have heard that version. And while Golden Years has one of Bowie's best grooves, Wild as the Wind has one of my favorite vocal performances. It's one of his bests. Yeah, the song for me that really brings this era to a close is Word on a Wing, because it is just so backwards and weird. It sounds like someone fit contemporary Christian lyrics into artificial intelligence software. The, the right words are all there, but the sentiment is totally wrong. It's an insincere prayer to God to fit into Bowie's plans, which is a very cocaine-driven thing to write. Bowie was into some really dark stuff, and he said he wrote the song as a form of protection. He said the song was something he, quote, needed to produce from within myself to safeguard myself against some of the situations that I felt were happening on the film set for The Man Who Fell to Earth. This leg of Bowie's spiritual journey comes to a desperate end. 
as he finds himself negotiating with God on how God can fit into his plans. So this trip from Diamond Dogs to Young Americans to Station to Station was one of the bumpiest legs in Bowie's journey, and it is definitely one of my favorites. Hello, welcome back. Um, you have been listening to rather a lot of really good early period Bowie. Our contributors have taken you through um, some good, some bad, and now we're here to sort of digest and expand upon them. Um, just to remind you who we've got, we've got Nick. Hello. We've got Lyle. Hello. We've got Emily. Hello. And we've got Ben. Hey there. Um, First of all, and like when I brought this up just before we started recording, everybody went, oh, seriously? But I'm going to do it in part two as well. Um, I want everybody's worst, best David Bowie, even if you just saying the word David Bowie. Now, granted, it could end up sounding like a flight of the Concorde-esque Bowie in space. <laughs> I don't I don't care. Basically, uh, you just want to do your Bowie impression. Well, no, mine's the terrible. only way you can work out how to do it was to make us all do one. Oh, no, no. My, I, will, I will tell you my David Bowie impression. It has changed from Hello, Sarah, it, from <laughs> Labyrinth. Um, and now it's, now it's something from the first album, which is like, this one is made of lipstick. It's terrible. <laughs> oh, yeah. Actually, while I was listening to the first album, it, I was thinking, I could probably do this, Bowie. Bowie. You can't speak unless you do a Bowie. <laughs> Me? Yeah. I don't have a Bowie. Oh, come on. Don't make okay. me cut. You know, I'll, I'll start because it's going to be terrible and then everyone will feel good going after me. <laughs> so, um, okay, this is going to be terrible. Hold on. There's a fly in my milk and he's soaking up all the milk. And that's what I am. Ha <laughs> ha. So there you go. Brilliant. Brilliant. Ben, come on. You've got to have oh, a Bowie boy. in you. Uh, let's see. Uh, okay. There's a star man waiting in the sky. That's all I'm, all I'm doing. I don't know whether I'm laughing at Bowie impressions or Americans <laughs> doing English impressions. I'm, I'm not it's, sure which it, of them. It's moment. one of my favorite things. <laughs> uh, Emily, come on. I really, I don't have one. I really. Let's I just start. David Bowie. <laughs> They're doing an impression of Ewan's impression of Bowie. Yeah, that's your get out. <laughs> Okay, Emily, Emily, I might try and come back to towards the end of the episode. Maybe okay. we'll finish this episode with a Bowie. Nick, come on. Can I can I use the same, play the same joker there? Like maybe at the end when I finish this bottle of beer. Okay, listen, we had And then you won't be able to stop of, me speaking like Bowie. We have a couple of brave contributors who I'm uh, forever in debt to. And <laughs> and we've got Emily who is waiting till the end. And we've got Nick, who's just being a bit of a coward. But sticking, that's fine. Really? Okay. What a miserable let's, bastard, aren't I? <laughs> let's get cracking. I mean, I mean, if we're going to start at the beginning, beginning, I don't want to dwell too much on the Davy Jones years uh, before Bowie took the Bowie moniker. Um, I mean, it's passable R&B stuff. I mean, there's a little bit of mod in there. Um, but for me, Bowie starts actually getting interesting with the first album. Um, <laughs> I've listened to this quite a lot over the last two weeks, possibly too much. But you know what? I think it gets. Ready to hear that? <laughs> I think it gets really bad stick unfairly. Um, if 
and I believe this is going to happen over the, these two episodes, if we applaud and praise Bowie for being this musical chameleon who goes through a new romantic period, there's some uh, drum and bass later on, there's jazz, there's pop, there's glam rock. This is his musical. This is his Dickensian musical. Mm. Um, this is his and this is a little bit of an English reference, his Arthur Askey or his Where's Me Washboard uh, up and down uh, Blackpool Tower uh, stage. Um, he, he didn't do this by accident. He has chosen this sort of style. Yeah. I mean, it's a style that if you skip forward 30, 40, 50 years, um, you've got your part lives and your, your blurs and your modern lives, is modern lives are rubbish, um, echoing back to this sort of thing. Um, I think we've got... <laughs> I mean, Maids of Bond Street, I think is a genuinely good song. It's catchy. Um, we've got uh, We Are Hungry Men, which is a song about cannibalism, infanticide, and fascism. We've and got- It's quite jaunty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this with, is the thing. With, you can imagine him in this sort of top hat and waistcoat uh, singing these weird little songs with a cane uh, under the lights at Blackpool Tower, right? I mean, is that well, the one that ends with the sound of him, you know, making noises like he's happily eating human yes. flesh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Okay. I mean, yeah. this is a subversive yeah. album. Um, people seem to forget this came out, if not the same day, around about the same time as Sgt. Pepper, mm -hmm. I think. Um, and it, obviously, when people look back, it's a little bit lost in that. We've got. And they were also doing a kind of jaunty musical shtick around that time. Well, no cannibalism, it. though. You know, <laughs> no, no. Beatles didn't go there enough. I mean, essentially, this is this is Bowie's um, dark version of Octopus's Garden. Um, <laughs> this is this is just a weird. We've got we've got Little Bombardier, which is a, a track that uh, has elements uh, uh, broaches pedophilia. We've got Please, Mister Gravedigger, which is like some weird murder ballad. I mean, this is a significantly better record than people give it credit for. Mm. But maybe mm. I'm going to say that. Can, can I? Can I? Can I both say you do an amazing time. job of defending it? Yeah. <laughs> You really are. I want to I, I'm worried people are going to go and listen to it as a result of this. Yeah. It's, it's, a true, it's an awful record. But the only thing I'm willing to say in its defense is when I listened to it last week, I genuinely laughed out loud quite a few times. I mean, it's, it's really silly. But I think a lot of the time I was laughing at it. And I don't really want to listen to it again. I'm, I mean, I, I, so I, I, I will fess up and say that I, prior to kind of preparing for this, uh, I, I had never actually listened to the entire first album all the way through before and didn't particularly like it <laughs> the first time that I, that I listened to it. I, I listened, I've listened to it a couple times now and I, I, I understand the, the impulse to, to say it's, it's not quite as bad as the rap that it's gotten. Um, I still, I, honestly, for me, actually, um, both the first and the second album, there's just, when he's doing that type of, of kind of, of, of folk rock, uh, it's just a little too precious. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a little too, I don't know, even twee isn't quite the right word. Mm. Um, yeah. But yeah I, there's, it, it doesn't, I know he's always kind of trying on a face, like Bowie's never not trying on somebody else's face, but just at this phase, I, I think it doesn't. Yeah. Work as well. And um, Ben, how au are you with uh, our uh, traditional English musical? Well, I'm glad you asked. Uh, it's one of my my hobbies. Uh, no, not at all, because uh, you know Americans have so little in terms of a frame of reference for the whole music hall tradition. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I have a hard enough time just relating to like what Paul McCartney was doing with uh, with the Beatles when he got a little music hall, like your mother should know or something like that. Mm-hmm. But when when you get this full on just sort of quirky vaudeville act or whatever Bowie was doing at the time, it it I mean, at least I would imagine that the British audience has more of a, a grounding in what, what he was trying to accomplish. Um, you know, his his idolization of Anthony Newley, for instance, that really mm-hmm. doesn't mean much to me. Um, I'm not sure if it should. I understand, you know, from watching the Bowie documentaries exactly, you know, how that how that all evolved. But listening to the final product, um, you know, I I you know, it it doesn't it doesn't resonate with me, let's say. <laughs> And Lyle, does it resonate with you at all? Uh, you know, or is I, it- I will give it a chance. I haven't listened to it in a long time. I, I listened to Tonight recently, so I figured I'd already done my penance. But I will um, give the first album a chance and, and get back to you. Uh, essentially, it is like Park Life, but slightly darker and 30, 40 years before. Um, so is it like his kingdom? Leave it out, walking around. <laughs> it does, doesn't it? You see? <laughs> now you want to listen to it. Um, <laughs> now, while I was listening to a lot of this, I found some love for the first album that I didn't think I had. I was also incredibly disappointed by the second. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I, I, I kind of... Go on. I'm sorry. I, uh, before we move on to the, the second one, I, I just wanted to uh, say something about Love You Till Tuesday. Yes. Um, it's a weird song. Which, yeah, it, it, it's fascinating, though, because when I listen to these early albums, I sort of think this is David Bowie trying to figure out what the heck he's doing. He's, yeah, as you've said, he's already moved on from his mod phase. He's trying out new things. What kind of performer does he want to be? Does, does he even want to go into rock and roll or into something else? Mm-hmm. Um, and some other kind of entertainer personality he, that become developed. a mime of some kind. Right. He yeah. yeah he, he was doing he was doing pantomime and all sorts of things at the time, I guess. But when I hear "Love You Till Tuesday," I can't help but think, you know, if that had actually succeeded, mm-hmm. um, you know, if that was like a hit single, David Bowie's life would have been completely different. You know, I mean, Quite possibly. I remember reading something, I think it was Chris O'Leary who uh, does this music blog, Pushing Ahead of the Dame, that's sort of a song by song thing on on Bowie and he got a couple of books at it as as well. And he imagines a whole alternate timeline. What if Love You Till Tuesday was a hit? Then, you know, uh, what would happen next? We need need another single like Sell Me a Coat, although I always hear him saying, sell me a goat, that one always- Me too, me Me too. I I thought it was a song about goats. Yeah, well, anyway. I was kind of disappointed when I realized it wasn't. <laughs> oh, but now, now I have this total musical sketch in my head where someone goes, sell me a goat. Here's a goat. No, I said coat. <laughs> so what would have happened if you get Love Me Till Tuesday, sell me a goat slash coat uh, hitting um, and becoming popular, then he becomes like a cabaret act or a lounge act. I mean, it, it would have gone in a completely different direction. I also thought about that. The only thing I would say is it's not like David Bowie being successful in a particular genre ever stopped him moving on. That's true. That's true. I mean, that's one thing we can see across his whole career. So maybe, just maybe, we wouldn't have been stuck with the musical version of David Bowie for 40 but, years. But then maybe his success allowed him to move on to something new. 
Um, mm. If this is what gave him his success, he might. But it wasn't successful felt. with this. Well, no, but if if in this alternate <laughs> reality, um, Rubber Band had made him a household name, um, then maybe yeah, maybe he would have stuck with it a little bit more. Anyway, we're gonna we are gonna move on now. Uh, we are gonna move on to um, well, what was another eponymously titled album, but then he changed it, right, Nick? Yeah, I think the record label changed it in the sort of after the success of uh, Space Oddity as a single. Um, and Space Oddity as a song is, is feels like quint quintessential Bowie. And you, you sort of start off with that as the, the title track. And then, and then after that, it's, it's, it's a mixed bag, but I kind of, I, I liked it going back. I kind of, I kind of remembered it as not being that great. And so listening to it again, I actually, I maybe went in with fairly low expectations and thought there's actually some pretty good stuff on there. The closing track, um, "Memories of a Free Festival," I think is a is a, is a really interesting one. And then, but you've also got you've you've also got a lot of that stuff that I think, like um, Emily was alluding to, that sort of like weird folk pop psychedelia stuff that reminds me a bit of like how John Peel used to speak on when his show was the Perfumed Garden. And I love John Peel, but when I hear old clips of that, and you think, well, you know, later on he kind of I don't know. He just he found his own voice and didn't have to do this strange, affected hippie thing. But the early stuff is just really weird to listen to now. I guess at the time that must have been a, a kind of trope that was among the kids was okay. <laughs> it just made me sound a little bit sort of tired, psych folk. Um, and I found it really hard to get into into the yeah. album. Um, wait, before we continue, the the version of Space Oddity. I don't, it, that's not the one I know. Am I going crazy? There's another one that's, that he's redone it re Probably. more recently. It just sounds yeah. not like the one I'm, I'm aware of. Are you talking about the one with the, just the piano in him? No. Because that was like, recorded during Scary Monsters. Possibly. I don't know. I mean, I, in my head, Space Oddity sounded a little bit different. Um, but then I think in my head, the album was a bit different. Um, Lyle, um, you 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 fessed up that you hadn't for, you hadn't really listened to the first album for a long time. How about the second one? I did listen to this one, um, and and kind of going back to what we were talking about um, with Bowie and different stages, and I kind of I kind of see the first two albums almost like a pre Altamont and then post Altamont that he was kind of more hippie ish and doing the thing, and then with not to jump on Man Who Sold the World too early, but that's when he starts getting more into madness and war and, and insanity. Mm -hmm. um, so that to me is kind of a defining line between those two albums. But I, I like Space Oddity. I like Unwashed and Slightly Dazed. Mm -hmm. I like Janine, maybe because they're the more kind of like rock and bouncing songs. But, uh, I'll, you know, I put that on occasionally. Mm -hmm. Emily, do you, do you ever visit... Space Oddity. I mean, we pick most people who are contributing to this are Bowie fans. So I'm assuming most people have certain listen to Bowie a certain amount of times in an average month. Is this on your playlist? Honestly, I mean, I always kind of thought of of the album Space Oddity um, as kind of you know a, a mediocre album with one really good song on it. Um, and having revisited it in the last few weeks, I, I think that's not that's not really fair. I think there are you know. There's a number of, of, of good 
tracks on there. I don't, I don't know how much higher up it's gone overall for me. It's still just, it feels a little, it feels just a little one dimensional to me. I think there's not um, as much kind of strangeness there that there will be soon. Ben, well, how are you with the strangeness and the psych folk <laughs> of Space Oddity? Well, for me, it, it feels like it's got multiple personalities, I guess, you know, typical for, for Bowie, but it's sort of looking back, you get, you get that psych folk and cabaret vibe going. But then, of course, you have Space Oddity, which certainly, you know, charts a path onto Ziggy and Starman and all the yeah. rest. Uh, Major Tom becomes this, you know, major character in, in the Bowie opus. Um, but another one that that strikes me as very kind of forward looking, at least, you know, again, as Bowie's kind of charting out all these possibilities for his future is Signet Committee. Mm -hmm. um, and that one, again, you've got this sort of messiah figure and you've got, you know, the you know kids, I guess, you know, forming their own society around this kind of cult leader and of course that's that's very much you know we see that pop up again and again with Ziggy and Aladdin Sane and all the rest um so you know listening listening to it from that perspective it's always fun to kind of find those nuggets where like oh okay he's going to take this strand and go with it later on while mm -hmm. he you know puts away these other things like the psych folk or whatever that he he uh finds no longer useful and uh, but I, I like finding those um, sort of germinal ideas and, and you know, figuring so, out. So I'm like rewatching The Wire and realizing there's yeah. something in season two that's yes. a precursor to something <laughs> in season four and you've never noticed it before. You go, oh my God, I didn't realize that's the same guy. But the big difference between this and the first album is, is, is like when you listen to this album, you can see all those strands, that, yeah. lots of things that you'll pick up later. Whereas yeah. when you listen to the first album, I mean, okay, you have got that kind of weird psychotic stuff going on, which I guess does have uh, antecedents but but it's kind of the first album you just listen to it and it's like it sounds like nothing like anything that comes i think out. you're right i think musically i think musically but he's on he's album, on the he's on the track now he might not have quite found the way but i think thematically and subject wise of some of the songs i think there is a thread that goes right from the first album through the second all the way through um, but I think musically, yeah, the first one is a total island. Um, so when we were starting to put this podcast together and I was reaching out to people, um, I realized that, number one, I had to take the, one of the worst albums, uh, but also I needed to sort of bribe people to come on board. Um, Emily was a bit busy. Um, and then I reached out and said, but you can have The Man Who Sold the World and Hunky Dory. And all of a sudden she wasn't quite as busy. Um, <laughs> Emily, you have got what was before this whole thing, my favorite Bowie album in Hunky Dory. You've got some absolute classics in there. Uh, Bowie's becoming Bowie. Um, how, how has it been revisiting all this? Well, um, I mean, part part of the reason that, as you said, I became less busy when I, <laughs> when I was given that particular choice of albums. I mean, uh, the song, the title track on The Man Who Sold the World has been one of my favorite, not only my favorite David Bowie songs, but one of my, my favorite songs by anyone, I would say, for a long time. But it was, again, it was one of those things where sometimes when there's um, a track that, that you really love on an album, you can kind of forget about the rest of it. So, so honestly, coming back and listening to that album many more times in the last several weeks, it's really like, it's gone way up in my overall David Bowie ranking actually. 
I would say. Um, I just, I used to sort of kind of not quite as dismissively as what I said for, for Space Oddity <laughs> ago, but I did previously think of it as it's a fine album, but it's, and it's got that one really good song on it. But actually, I think it's, I think it's so interesting that just the sonic change from the previous two albums to the third one, because for one thing, it's getting a lot heavier, right? And yeah. a lot of it has to do with the various um, musicians that are being brought on board, uh, Visconti and, uh, and Women's Dean, et cetera, Ronson. Um, but I also, I think it's interesting to think of as a traditional, as a um, transitional album in some ways as well, because take, for example, I think of the second track, the All the Mad Men, um, which is one of those spaces where kind of the darker turn in the lyrics really comes where he's talking about insanity and et cetera. If you just look at his vocals on it or some some elements of, of the way that song is written, I, I could easily imagine that having been done in sort of the style of the first or the second album and it having been, you know, obviously arranged completely differently and having to be kind of in that slightly quirky, slightly precious sort of um, folk pop sort of mode. But here, you know, with that guitar and with that, it's, it's got all these different almost like movements to it in the version that's on the man who sold the world and it you know he even uses like that same i can't remember the, the exact name of the the vocal technique but the same thing that's used on laughing gnome i think actually where it has the sped up vocals is also used on all the madmen um but in this in this case it's it's just a totally different um yeah i think you're right i think sonic sonically it does change dramatically i think some of the tracks also sound more not, not, I'm not sure composed is the right word, but definitely yeah. thought out as, as as longer pieces. I mean, I'll be honest. I mean, I while I was growing up, I was aware of Bowie, Bowie but uh, The Man Who Sold the World, I probably heard more times as the uh, MTV Unplugged Nirvana right. mid-90s Exactly. Because that was everywhere. Um, Lyle, where are, you, where are you standing on this? I mean, moving into something a little bit more guitar-y and less psych-folky. Yeah, I, you know, I, I uh, re-listened to it this morning, um, and I liked it more today than I have in the past. I, to me, it's always been kind of like his metal album. Mm -hmm. um, you know, She Shook Me Cold kind of sounds like Black Sabbath. But uh, again, just kind of the themes of madness coming in with all the madmen. Um, I thought it was interesting listening to Running Gun Blues, which the problem there is, oh, they've, you know, they're they brought peace. There's no more wars, but there's this soldier who just needs to keep killing. And uh, so he's blowing people away, even civilians. And then the next song is Savior Machine, which is <laughs> President Joe and a utopia. And like, oh, my gosh, this is so boring that everything's peaceful. I need a plague. I need death. So he's already like totally switched sides uh, to the next song. But um, yeah, like I said, it's kind of his metal album. Uh, and definitely a precursor to the rock to come, you know, with the next couple albums. Although I do think that this album is is, is a total flip with what comes almost immediately afterwards. Um, ben, I mean, this this period of Bowie is it is it? Uh, I mean, we've got the the metal followed by and we'll uh, we'll broach the happiness of Hunky Dory in a minute. Uh, but how does this period of Bowie sit for you? Is it a bit too? <sighs> boring and, and, and not quite interesting yet or is it going somewhere have we got those threads 
Uh, we definitely have lots of threads going on. I mean, first of all, I mean, in terms of uh, this more guitar-driven sound, not quite glam yet, you know, more of the, uh, yeah, Sabbath Led Zeppelin influence maybe. But for me, it's it's all about the introduction of Mick Ronson into that mm -hmm. sound. And you get it right away with Width of a Circle. Um, you know, you you hear Mick Ronson's guitar and and you can sort of imagine Bowie saying, okay, go ahead, you know, take the song and do what you want with it. Um, and so he seems to have this already this kind of trust that, you know, uh, even though, again, this is sort of moving in a very different direction than uh, from what he had ever done before, he's like, okay, let's, let's do this. Uh, and, and so you get that, you get that heavy heaviness throughout it. Uh, although obviously, yeah, we get, we get some touches from, you know, previous albums as well. All the Mad Men, it's interesting what Emily was saying about it too, because, you know, it is about madness, which is something that he had, you know, grappled with before. But here it seems really informed, you know, based on what I know about Bowie's biography about his half brother, mm -hmm. Terry Burns, who was diagnosed with uh, paranoid schizophrenia and he was institutionalized um, uh, around this time at, uh, you know, Cane Hill. And so apparently there are references in all the Mad Men that really speak directly to that. And so I, I, maybe it's just because it's uh, that's more personal. It doesn't seem quite as precious or twee as as uh, things he had written before, even with those high pitched voices. Um, I mean, it, so it feels I, like yeah. downright like sinister to me. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I think that's it. There is a there is a heaviness and a darkness to this album, which uh, as as we're going to talk about now, totally seems to change moving into say Hunky Dory. Um, as a brief aside, I don't get jealous of famous people often but occasionally i think that if i was duncan jones or zoe bowie and i had a song that david bowie had sat when i was born and made up and played to me uh I, which is kooks yes, kooks, I'd be, yes i would i would be that that song that song that's mine that's to me that is that, that's just <laughs> one moment um uh, Nick, I know this was your fame, your favorite before you we, you did the initial immersion. I think Hunky Dory. No, oh no, ignore that. Bit. <laughs> no, what no. I mentioned to you was what I remember from the immersion was the 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 sheer number of people who who declared Hunky Dory to be their favorite. It's not my favorite. Never okay. was. Well, I'll let you tap it out. <laughs> I don't dislike it. That makes it sound like I want to diss it. But uh, and um, I, 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 a purpose of nothing, I'd be I'm on a bound to mention that Mick Ronson is from Hull. Just because if you're from Hull, you have to mention that Mick Ronson is from Hull. It's just one of those little things. Aren't uh, <laughs> if I let this pass without it happening, then you know there'll be consequences. Uh, Boulder and Woodmansey, they were also from Hull too, right? Really? Damn! I've got a guy from Boston here telling me I, who? <laughs> <laughs> Jersey. He's from Jersey. Um, okay, so. Getting Sorry. back on track after this meandering, we're going into the happiness, the joy, but obviously joy by Bowie standards is, is never pure and simple. Um, Emily, I'm going to throw it open to you and then back over to maybe Nick and, and Ben. Hunky Dory. I mean, this it's a great album, right? It's great. It's happy. It starts brilliantly. And it's, it's a real, it's another, you know, in the space of two albums, really, he's kind of done two different total about faces in terms of the overall sound of the album, right? So as opposed to where you had the super guitar heavy sounds um, on the previous album on Hunky Dory, it's very, I mean, I, I, my understanding of the way that the songs were composed, he composed them all on piano, and you can really hear that in the structure of the songs. 
I think that you can actually, just thinking about the relationship to some of the, the earlier albums that we talked about as well, I think you can kind of hear that music hall element coming back again here as well, um, but realized in a, you know, in a very different way than it was on, say, um, the first album. And I think that, that that's combined with just the beginnings of that glam aesthetic here and also just hooks that are this, I mean, this album has so many like songs with like incredible, super catchy hooks and from changes at the beginning to um, all you pretty things, life on Mars, which is just a massive, massive ballad, you know, and then I love, you know, on the second, well, on the second half of the album, there are the three songs that are kind of like framed as his like trilogy of, of kind of tributes to, to influences of various types of which I tend to think, I like Andy Warhol a lot. I don't think the Bob Dylan track, the song for Bob Dylan is one of the strongest on the album, actually. Like, I don't think this is a perfect, perfect album. That's one of the slightly less up there tracks to me, but in part just because there are so many earworms elsewhere. I, I think you're right about uh, it not necessarily being a perfectly balanced album, maybe. Mm -hmm. I think it's one of those albums where one side is significantly more accessible than the other. I mean, we've got side one, changes, oh, you pretty things, life on Mars, kooks are all sitting on, are all sitting on the first side of the record. And side two, yeah, we've got Andy Warhol, uh, Queen Bitch. Um, but I don't know. I mean, maybe it's deliberately not as accessible. The singles are all early. Um, mm -hmm. Ben, um, which side are you? Are you, are you the accessible singles? Or are you the, the <laughs> sort of the darker trilogy on the second side? Uh well, side two has Queen Bitch, which is my favorite. Um, and, uh, you know, yes. I, as a big uh, Velvet Underground fan, I, you know, I just love how, you know, apparently Bowie, you know, had the the acetate or first pressing of the first Velvet Underground album, way, you know, way back in 67. But now, you know, we finally get that, that uh, the full on VU effect with Queen Bitch. And I took him so long. Yeah, exactly. He's too busy uh, imitating Anthony Newley, apparently, but you know, he finally got around to imitating Lou Reed instead. And uh, I love that. Um, but yeah, I mean, side one is undeniable. And um, yeah, if I think about um, Bowie albums that I played the most, this is probably the one I've, I've, I've just played the most, but I may, you know, I may have skip, skip a few of those tracks. But uh, yeah, I mean, Life on Mars, it's just Incredible. I, I get something new out of it every time I listen to it, I'm pretty sure. Um, and Oh, You Pretty Things and Kooks. I mean, there's so many, so many good ones on here. Um, it's easy to kind of get into a, a, a frame of mind where like, that's, that's just what I want, want to listen to. This kind of hunky-dory mm -hmm. era Bowie just, um, just hits in all cylinders. You know, you have the band uh, working so well with him. And, you know, um, you've got the quiet moments, you've got the glamier moments with Queen Bitch especially. It just has everything. Um, Lyle, I mean, uh, you defined uh, The Man Who Sold the World as maybe the metal album. Uh, how would you classify Hunky Dory? Ooh, that's tough. Because I feel like it has some of those folky, it's not folky though. It's a more mellow album. I don't know how to. I don't know how to classify it. I can tell you that that first side is untouchable, um, as far as just being great. But what's hard for me is my favorite track off the album is "Quicksand," um, which I would guess is the beginning of side two. Oh, it's um, 
Oh, is it the end of side one? Okay, yeah. side one, totally untouchable, and side two, whatever. Uh, the man who sold the world, he, you kind of get into the Nietzsche, homo superior thing with Superman, but he starts to explore that more on this album in Quicksand, talking about Aleister Crowley and Nazis and stuff. So um, uh, that's where you have that. But yeah, I don't know how to classify this, but it's definitely in my top three. It's a pop album though, right? I mean, essentially, this is, is, side one is pop. It's pop songs, it's it's radio friendly. Um, It's very easy to remember Bowie as that. And then go, oh yeah, but there was obviously there was Berlin, there was other things, but it's very easy for, for if you're in a certain frame of mind to to remember Bowie as that. Um, I don't think you'd have ever seen this, um, but in the UK when uh, when David Bowie died, on um, the BBC News, they went round and they interviewed lots of people in the street and it was really a big deal. And they try, everybody, they seemed to ask to sing Starman which is on the next album we're going to cover in uh, uh, Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders of Mars. Of Mars? From Mars? Sorry. Um, nobody could do it. Every single person was like, oh, yeah, I love Bowie. He's like, there's a star man. And every single person sort of drifted off. Uh, considering it's, 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 it's such an epochal work, um, that was my slightly clunky segue uh, to move on into the next phase of Bowie and that's Ziggy um Ben you've got Ziggy I sure do uh yes I I feel very lucky to uh to be the one to uh to get Ziggy um such an incredible album um in terms of just consistent quality I I you know I would say probably the best in my estimation um although like I said I I find myself returning to Hunky Dory quite a bit but you know Ziggy uh, the album is just um, just great from beginning to end, and I don't get too hung up on all of the uh, the whole science fiction narrative that uh, that Bowie is uh, is uh, presenting through the songs, um, and it, it may be impossible to separate the music from all of that kind of sci-fi business. Uh, but you know, when I when I listen to Hunky Dory and Ziggy Stardust back to back. I find all sorts of through lines, not just Queen Bitch, uh, you know, but but other things where, you know, it's that band, it's it's the Spiders from Mars, it's Ronson and Boulder and Woodman C, um, uh, all working together with with Bowie and uh, creating this new glammy sound. And uh, I remember that I remember seeing George Harrison talking about how uh, Rubber Soul and Revolver. He always thought of it as Volume One and Volume Two. Which, which I thought at first that's kind of odd because you know with the Beatles they were making such a big step you know forward with with Revolver but if you do listen to them back to back you can kind of hear what uh, George Harrison meant by that and so I kind of feel Hunky Dory and Ziggy Stardust again if you sort of put aside all of the image making and the new hair and the new clothes just musically um, you could sort of see those as Volume One and Volume Two. Yeah, I mean, I think there's still, I mean, yeah, there's the whole science fiction element coming into it. But even with things like five years, I mean, five years is about we've got five years and then the world's over, right? Yeah. Um, and I read there was that, the idea that that was also the same theme in all the young dudes. Exactly. Yeah, right. So uh, Bowie, Bowie, you know, was steeped in various uh, science fiction novels, um, you know, including The Man Who Fell to Earth, which he would later uh, star in the movie adaptation of. 
Um, and so he, he's influenced by Heinlein and all, all these different science fiction writers. He comes up with his own narrative and he sort of fixates on this idea of the, you know, the earth is going to be destroyed in five years. And uh, here's, you know, Ziggy Stardust and apparently all the young dudes to carry the news. Um, and so he's working that into um, all of his lyrics and of course his own image making. He is creating himself as a star in this album. Hunky Dory David Bowie is not a star. Um, Ziggy Stardust uh, Bowie is sort of self-actualizing as a star. Um, of course, with the famous moment, at least famous uh, for um, in a British pop culture, the Top of the Pops um, performance where, where he performs Starman and everybody loses their minds over it, you know. And But, you know, Starman, in the lyrics, he's saying he thinks he'd blow our minds. And, you know, he's actually made that happen through this performance um, in a way that just seemed totally natural based on all of the cabaret and other sort of performance art that he had been doing in the past. Here he is putting on a new show and the show becomes reality. Uh, you know, and the Spiders from Mars is backing band that was supposed to be just the fictional backing band, but now they're the spiders from Mars. You know, the fantasy has become the reality. And so, you know, Bowie then, you know, takes on this persona, inhabits it to such an extent, it becomes hard to tell where Bowie begins, uh, you know, where Bowie ends and where Ziggy begins. And of course he would try to kill that off um, after the Ziggy Stardust tour. Although, you know, later albums, he's, he's still kind of in, Ziggy mode for a while before he, you know, really can move on to the next phase. So is this the moment, do we think this is the moment he broke through some form of, uh, not necessarily a wall, but became bigger than just a musician releasing records? I mean, even on, even on the song titles, we've got Starman, Lady Stardust, Star, Ziggy Stardust. I mean, this is, this is <laughs> yeah. his star moment. In mind game, that's what he's More ways than one, yeah. But yeah, I mean, for me, this is when he went from uh, oh, I've got a kid, uh, I'm singing songs, I'm David Bowie, to something totally uniquely different. Lyle, I mean, um, when did, was this the Bowie that when you were a kid, you were like, oh my God, who is this guy? Or So I did, I mean, I don't even think I discovered this Bowie until I was a teenager. You know, I grew up with the Bowie, let's dance Bowie. Yeah. Um, and probably the first time I heard Ziggy Stardust was the Bauhaus version. Um, but I do remember listening to this album for the first time because, you know, the 90s was when Ryko Disc was re-releasing everything. So that's when I first heard this. And it was just solid from start to finish. Um, I mean, every song is great. And uh, yeah, definitely turned, definitely one of the key things that turned me on to Bowie in general. I will say least favorite song on the album is It Ain't Easy which I believe is a cover, it seems yeah. to just kind of like put a, it kind of slows the album down. The album has so much energy and, and um, moving forward. And that's just kind of, eh. As an aside, can I ask from the period, was there any, were there any Bowie covers that were good? Or is he always <laughs> off the mark when he, when he covers someone else's stuff? Well, we've, we, we do have essentially a covers album coming up. I know, and it's shit. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, and even in the next album, we've got. Yeah, I don't think he's. He, he, I think he phones in his cover versions. Then why do them? It just so, so strong. Well, I mean, you know, at the time maybe it was an. You know, it makes you think. Is that an insecurity thing that you feel you have to put some covers on? It's hard to imagine he was insecure. 
Andreas across the universe when we get to Young Americans. But yeah. there is a reason why he covered that song. And it wasn't because, you know, it was uh, great. Also, I mean, there was more of a tradition, say, in the 60, 50s and 60s of people covering it. No, no, sure, sure. The idea of, oh, the Beatles have done this. We can also do this. Whereas yeah, yeah. now it just seems totally, totally different. I guess uh, it's Emily, just because you're, you're it's sort of and looking puzzled, um, you like you want to say something about Ziggy? I mean, I, I, I was just—I was actually just going to say about about the covers. I, I don't think it's necessarily that like his covers are terrible. They just—I think it's often, especially on these albums, which are some of um, like his some of his best albums, that they just the covers sound uninspired next to his own stuff. You know? Yeah, that's kind of what I was. My point is, it just feels superfluous when when his own yeah, work yeah, is like so interesting in this period. Right. The covers right. just feel like why why would you do that? And it's it also not as good as anything, especially uh, for it ain't easy in the context of Ziggy Stardust. It's like I thought this was yeah. supposed to be a concept album. Why? Are, why are you even doing this? It doesn't, you know. So, so was um, it obligation? Like, yeah. <laughs> well, maybe it's sort of a these. Oh, yeah, this is me. But also, I've got influences. I mean, he doesn't right. seem to ever want to let go of his influences and telling people. It's like it's like the guy going, "Oh yeah, but I also read this." Now, there is an element of maybe it is an insecurity. Um, some of the most insecure people I've known are the people that talk about what all the all the cool, interesting things they've read and listened to that make them who so they are. Um, but obviously, I mean, Ziggy sort of propelled him into superstardom, um, and I think financially, Aladdin Sane continued the upward trajectory. Then, uh, yes, I mean, uh, although it certainly as the sort of major superstar of the moment in the UK. Um, in the US, it probably takes until young Americans before he, he you know, starts reaching that level. Um, I'm, not, I'm not sure why exactly, but I mean, he, he, was, he was doing much bigger concerts and bigger tours, starting with Ziggy Stardust and moving into Aladdin Sane in this, this era, 72, 73, than he had ever done before. But he wasn't the sort of the super superstar in the US quite yet. Um, but, you know, again, he's, with Aladdin Sane, it's, you know, you can see it as a, a new version of the Ziggy Stardust persona. He, you know, from that iconic album cover with, he's still got the, the, the spiky red hair and the sort of the lightning bolt makeup, uh, which, you know, apparently was very expensive. It was like the most expensive album cover of the time. Really? But really? That, wow. That's what I read somewhere. Um, <laughs> but, but uh you know, I mean, it, it, that that sense of him kind of fracturing, right? I mean, you've got you sort of imagine his his fractured face with that lightning bolt as kind of emblematic of what he's going through himself. You know, he's what happened to David Bowie? Is he now just being sort of transformed into all these other personae from Ziggy to Aladdin Sane? And uh, you know, I, it's it's interesting here getting all of these. Um, American influences, not just Lou Reed and the Velvet Underground, but you know, lots of Iggy and the Stooges now um, mm. getting in there, especially with Panic in Detroit and Gene yeah. Genie, where you know he's 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 sort of found his new obsession and it's Iggy Pop. Yeah, yeah but I mean, um, he composed a lot of Aladdin Sane um, on the road on the the American leg of the Ziggy Stardust tours, so it makes sense if it's like, oh yeah he just saw the New York Dolls, you know, and he's like, oh my goodness, New York Dolls, I want to do something that sounds like them. And so he does Watch That Man. So you can see how he's sort of soaking all of this stuff up and then immediately incorporating it into, into what he's producing. Uh, you know, that's something Bowie has been able to do so well 
um, as well as, you know, still, we're still getting a little bit of uh, music hall cabaret type stuff for in, in the song Time, for instance, where again, it's this sort of Jacques Rell style. Um, and then we've got, you know, Rolling Stones in the mix as well. And of course, you know, even, you know, with that, with that cover and not another not so great cover uh, with the Let's Spend the Night Together. Um, but, you know, just the the kind of the the grungy sleazy sound of Exile on Main Street and Sticky Fingers and you know you can hear you could just sort of imagine Bowie listening to Brown Sugar and being like okay now I'm going to try to put some of that into my music yeah. so he's just sort of again soaking it all in and and you know creating something and I, it works quite well I would say not you know quite as well as Ziggy Stardust but it's a great follow up to it. Um, so in that case I'm going to throw a question over to everybody really I mean we. We raise up Bowie for having for, for all of these multiple influences and, and uh, new ground, etc. But is there also an argument that he does just copy a lot of people very quickly? Like things are happening and he just repeats it, and then his sound changes. Obviously, it's influenced by all these new things. But Bowie's sound, apart from these threads that go through, does seem to be very brittle. I mean, I was just going to say. I mean, I think. If, if what you're saying that like is the question is is Bowie a, an opportunist I, mean, I, mean, I, I would say absolutely he is but I would also kind of say so what <laughs> I mean I think, I think he always has been um I, I was gonna add what's important about this album is it's the album where Mike Garson gets to like like they take the leash off of him and just let him go um which adds a totally different Thing to what Bowie's done before, which is this kind of jazz piano, um, you know, specifically the solo um, during Aladdin Sane. Um, so, so I will agree. I mean, there, you can look at his whole career where he steals from other people, but he's also like, well, let's just try something crazy. Do like a big jazz solo that's not in any key and, uh, you know, it works. It's, it's one of his like best moments. Um, Nick, anything to say about, uh, I guess, uh, about you know, on, on what you were saying? Is um, I think that that sort of magpie approach is very kind of core to, to David Bowie, but also there are there are a lot of artists who do that kind of thing where they'll like be trying on different kinds of styles all the time. But with Bowie, there's a sort of consistent thing running through all of it where it's all recognizably Bowie, whatever whatever genre he's playing in, whether it's drum and bass or glam rock or you know ripping off Iggy then it all sounds like Bowie. And, yeah. that, and that's that's probably what makes him pretty special. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. Um, okay, so we've we've gone through Ziggy Stardust, we've got through Aladdin Sane, and then Pinups. Yeah. This is the Twiggy album, right? <laughs> this is the Twiggy album. The Twiggy Correct. album. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, Twiggy, Twiggy's right there on the cover with, uh, with David and, uh, you know, sort of the, uh, the end of things in general. I mean, sort of the end of the the whole Ziggy look. Um, but for now, we get one last shot of him there with Twiggy, also kind of looking like an alien. Um, and uh, you know what that has to do with the contents of the album? Not much, because it's this. It's not. There's nothing futuristic or sci-fi about this, because it's all just him going back to his roots from his mod days. Um, and, you know, professing his love for the easy beats and the pretty things and Pink Floyd of the Sid Barrett era, et cetera, mm -hmm. et cetera. And uh, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, it's, it's, it's great that he 
you know, wanted to, to kind of bring those influences out a bit more by doing this tribute to them. But, you know, it's such a letdown after these highs. I mean, think about it. I mean, going from The Man Who Sold the World to Hunky Dory to Ziggy Stardust to Aladdin Sane. I mean, those are four incredible albums in a row. And then we get pinups. <laughs> and uh, um, so it's a letdown and feels feels a bit rushed. Uh, you know, I'm sure Bowie loved all of this music and, and wanted, wanted to share that love, but it almost feels like, you know, was he contractually obligated to uh, put out this album at this point? He wasn't really. I just think that that uh, that it, it was a little kind of pet project that he wanted to do. Yeah. Maybe he needed to just get it out of his system, cleanse his palate before he moved on to the next thing. Well, I think maybe there, that might be a thing. I mean, I've been looking at the, we had Hunky Dory late 71. And then six months, then we had Ziggy Stardust in 72, Aloud Insane in 73, and jumping forward a little, we get Diamond Dogs in 74. Pinups was also, came out a few months pretty much after Aloud Insane, like uh, April, May, June, July, August, September, yeah. six, like five or six months. Maybe it was just a, I'm just going to take a break. I need to put something out there. I, I, I don't have a new thing in me yet. I don't know what the next thing is going to be. I don't know what my, my next Bowie is. Uh, I haven't changed. I, I, he hasn't found the new thing. He just maybe just needed a break. Yeah, that, right. I mean, it, it's possible. I mean, it, he, he, this is, he recorded in the summer of 73. So yeah, it's right, right in this kind of uh, transitional time between um, Aladdin Sane and Diamond Dogs. And uh, he just, holes up at that chateau in France where people liked to record their music, the honky chateau, as Elton John called it. And, you know, spends a few weeks just listening to music he likes and playing with the band he likes. And this is the last time that whole band would be all together. You know, the Spiders from Mars would kind of break up after that. The whole Bowie-Mick Ronson collaboration comes to an end um, after this. And so it's sort of, you know, one, one last hurrah with uh, these guys that he likes playing with and, and playing music that he enjoyed growing up. Okay, well, I mean, that seems like a, a good a good time to, to move on. I mean, this seems like a bookend to a certain period of Bowie's life, musically, uh, collaboratively, uh, and then sort of heads into the, the Diamond Dogs era. Um, Lyle, um, as, as you said, it, as you said in your, your your introductions to some songs, it's like this is his, his heading towards Berlin period. This is the, the fascism yeah. and the the milk and whatever. T -t Tell us, milk. all about the milk. All about the milk. <laughs> Peppers are what keep you regular. Um, <laughs> it, it's, it, it is a, yeah, I try to figure out where to start with, with this period, because um, kind of like what you were saying of like, where could Bowie have gone, you know, if, if things had been different. And if you listen to um, Mick Ronson's solo album, Slaughter on 10th Avenue, Bowie has a couple songs on that and it's like, okay, that's what Bowie would have done. It would have just been glam mm -hmm. part three. Um, and I think you're probably right. You and he just needed to like go do something different. And so he, yeah, the, uh, I mentioned in, in my section about a, a train trip he took on the Orient express and then rolling into Moscow and just kind of seeing totalitarianism and the effects of that. Um, and reading a book on Goebbels really kind of fueled his interest in fascism and the occult and, and all of that stuff. Um, I feel like I should add with, add with this album. My first Bowie album was actually Changes Bowie. So it was, you know, greatest hits. 
And I remember hearing Diamond Dogs um, and Rebel Rebel and thinking like, oh, I don't I don't think I'm going to listen to Diamond Dogs anytime soon. Sounds like pretty straightforward rock. And then of all places, I discovered a Diamond Dogs cassette at my grandpa's house, um, which, I mean, to some of my grandpa, he once fired um, George Carlin to, to Over the Edge uh, to be an ad man for the um, uh, airlines that he was a vice president of. But, um, you know, you pop in that tape and it's, you know, and in the depth as the last few corpses lay rotting in slimy thoroughfare. <laughs> there, there's my second Bowie uh, impression. <laughs> okay, so you're on two. Nick's on none, Emily's on can I Can I claim one of those? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then that ends with like, this ain't rock and roll, this is genocide. Yeah. Like, what, am I, what am I, yeah, genocide. <laughs> what do I listen to? The crowd roars. <laughs> um, and it's, and uh, so, so I love that, that's, one of my top three Bowie albums, I think because it, it, you hear that it's, it's, Oh, it's a musical version of 1984. And that's not true. It's a little bit of this musical in 1984 that he wanted to produce. It's a little bit about just the things that were influencing him. There's some just kind of dystopianism, brave new world. Um, and a lot of, you know, William Burroughs cut up technique, uh, which was, you write all your lyrics out, you cut it up, move it around on a table, boom, you have something new from everything you put together. So things I could mention that I didn't mention in the other thing, probably the most interesting thing about this album was that Bowie did all of the guitars on it except for 1984. Um, That was uh, Alan Parker doing that sort of shaft style funky guitar, right? The Waka Waka. (laughs) Uh, and I was Alan Parker doing that. And um, I think my favorite moment on the whole album is the uh, Sweet Thing candidate, Sweet Thing reprise, um, mainly because it, it's uh, it's just, it's interesting, it's beautiful. That definitely sounds like it could be part of some musical, um, very dramatic and emotional. Uh, I just, yeah, I love it. I mean, we've gone, we've moved quite a distance musically uh, and sonically from, say, say, hunky dory. Um, Emily, I mean, where, 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 where does this fit? You were talking about your rankings of Bowie albums earlier on. Things going up, things going down. Where, where, where is uh, Diamond Dogs in there? For me, it's it's kind of an odd album because it it feels um, it feels very unsettled in a way to me. Like it feels sort of like he's he's turned from one thing and he hasn't quite settled on on what the new thing to do is you know um i mean it's honestly i really like candidate as well that's probably i think the strongest track for me on the album i I always thought it was interesting that you know he had been sort of imagining doing a musical version of 1984 because the song 1984 on this album is to me at least has always been sort of it's 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 the track that I want to skip <laughs> on this album. Um, but yeah, it, there's something about it that doesn't quite. It seems un, it feels unsettled to me. Maybe it's the waka waka that we were talking about. Uh, uh, I, there are so many stories about different periods of Bowie's life that I always get slightly lost. Um, what was happening in his life at this point? Um, ben Lyle, what what was going on? Do we know? 
Uh, I mean, personally, <laughs> that's of cocaine, right? Was this was this was this, was this him starting to go into the the, the coke years? This is not yet. The, I mean, maybe the start of the cocaine. The cocaine was really during Young Americans. Mm-hmm. Well, let's, let's, move, let's move straight yeah. into Young Americans, which, as we've already <laughs> said, which we've already discovered, uh, he be- first became pop- proper, properly a star in America once he had the word Americans in the title of his album. Um, <laughs> but also, this is his cocaine period. Lyle, um, where is he going with Young Americans? Uh, you said in your introductions that he sort of keeps a bit from his old albums and brings new stuff in. What does he keep? What does he bring in? So I think with this one, uh, and Ava Cherry talks about this in the uh, Five Years documentary, Bowie literally was just like, hey, I want to be a soul man now. And she's like, okay. He's like, how do I do that? She's like, well, let's go to the Apollo. And so they go to the Apollo. That's where they get Carlos Alomar, uh, that's where they get Luther Vandross because they're all playing in the band there. Um, and as I, I said in my bit, it's really during the Diamond Dogs tour where he starts taking his songs and doing it in a more soulful way. way. Uh, they're more kind of R&B influenced. So I think literally he just said like, yeah, maybe I'm done with rock. Let's uh, let's do some soul stuff. And I, th- I think, you know, when you talk about plastic soul, which is what he he says he was doing during Young Americans, it's it's soulful, but it is fake. It's not, it's not human. Uh, and, and that's what's going on in a lot of that Young Americans record is that it's, it sounds soulful, it sounds groovy, um, but it's not really uh, heartfelt or affectionate or empathetic. Um, and a lot of that's probably due to the, the cocaine. Uh, as I said, Fascination was a song called Funky Music by Luther Vandross. It's literally the exact same song. Bowie's version adds some effects to it. Um, but Fascination is all about, man, I just can't stand still. I, I need another bump of cocaine. It's great. I think the album, I think the album, co- sorry, uh, I was just going to say, I think the album cover of this is the first time there's an album cover that I would look at and go, I don't want to buy that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> You like know, like the, the long hair and yeah, the, the long hair. There's the cigarette. There's the there's the really sort of bad font. Kind of great though. I think it's. I th- I mean, I understand. I I understand your point, but I think it's it's so terrible. It's it's sort of fantastic, and him with the sort of, you know, the cigarette smoke there, and like the light in his hair. And the uh, cover style. Gosh, I'm going to get this wrong. Was from a photo. Debbie Harry seems too early. But it was from a, a glamour shot of a female pop star at the time, and he's like, "I want my cover to look like that." And he almost has like a halo, sort of, you know. Yeah, yeah. The aesthetic of it. I mean, I'm looking at it now. It's kind of almost 1980s. Yeah, but that's it. You know, the jacket he's wearing, the backlit hair, the font. It's it's all very 1980s. I think Emily just said something quite interesting. I don't want us to let go of. Like you said, it's like it's so bad. Like it, we're almost going down. It's the so bad. It's good. Period. Uh, 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 idea. <laughs> Now, the next uh, episode of this pod, we've got the 80s. And the 80s, there's a lot of Bowie being, oh, that's a bit kitsch. Or that's a bit sort of people going, well, yeah, it's bad, but it's Bowie, isn't it? Um, I mean, this album does have great stuff. I mean, Lyle, we've got, we've got a cover version, which, again, we've got, across, we've got another cover version. But we've also got Young Americans, Fame, um, which you know is bookended by good tracks start start uh, start in the end and another cover. Is this a good cover? No, it's not. Um, 
<laughs> so I was going to mention the, <laughs> the initial album that he was working on was called The Gouster. And The Gouster refers to a uh, African-American style of dress in Chicago, kind of like really nice, slick, dressed to the nines type of thing. And then he was recording in New York City, wanted John Lennon. You know, he was like, hey, maybe John Lennon will come in if I do a cover of Across the Universe and play it for him. And um, I don't like the cover version at all. Um, and, but apparently it worked because it got John Lennon into the studio. And that's what led them to doing Fame together, which is... So, so the Galster was one type of album. And then they ditched a few tracks off of that, added Across the Universe, added Fame. And I want to say maybe somebody up there likes me was the, the third song. Okay. Well, whatever happened to John, I'm Only Dancing, didn't they get pushed off the album? That seems like such a great song. I don't know why yeah. they would have left it off. Oh, the, um, oh, that's right. They did record that as an addition thing. Is that not on the final version? No, it's like an extra. I think it's a bonus, bonus track, yeah, on the, on the that's CD. That's where I was confused by it because I remember John, I'm Only Dancing as a bonus track, but thinking it was part of the album. Um, I don't know why they left it off because he, um, I know Bowie liked it. Okay, so um, terrible cover versions are probably good, good times to leave albums. But also, we've talked about Personas before. And I think we're moving now into the Thin White Duke uh, with Station to Station. Now, I've already made a mistake once during this pod by thinking that Nick's had a favorite album. You <laughs> like Station to Station, though, don't you? Station to Station is my favorite Bowie album, yes. <laughs> Why? I mean, let's swing over to you, Nick, and then we'll go back into life. I mean, okay, so first Bowie album I really I mean. I say I really love it because I, I, I do like a lot of the preceding stuff, but there's something that happens with Bowie here and it's kind of almost feels for me like this belongs with the Berlin trilogy, which, mm-hmm. which I also love. Um, I don't know. This is just, just Bowie. I feel like I really connect with, you know, where, you know, the previous stuff is like, you know, it's, it's cool. It's great pop. It's great rock and then the stuff, but this album is, this has got a more interesting edge to it. Uh, I'm struggling to articulate if I'm being completely honest. Uh, I, one thing I, I do know you a little bit, Nick, and I know that you're, you you have started to develop a liking for Krautrock over yes. the last few then years. Then there's probably a big part of that because yeah. the Kraftwerk connection mm-hmm. is, is a big thing. Um, you know, it opens with the, the track Station to Station. It's, it's, it's an epic track. And, and, yeah, it's like 10 minutes long. Is that yeah. right, Well, in, in the same way, you know, that it could be like uh, something by Cam. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so love the thing white Duke. Uh, I'm guessing also now we're into the heavy cocaine period. He, he's he's heading towards the Berlin pit type of his life. Um, it, it, it's it's what both accessible and totally inaccessible album, right? Yes. Uh, so the difficulty in researching this album is Bowie famously does not remember recording this album, <laughs> um, and most of the musicians who recorded it don't remember it either because. Bowie's, Bowie's so heavily into cocaine and the musicians are saying, you know, just to keep up with him, we have to do the same amount of cocaine because he's going to want to record at any moment. Um, like many Bowie albums, I think it was recorded in a few weeks. Um, but, uh, you know, Bowie talks, you know, he has these alter egos, but the alter egos are all him. Um, so when he talks about the thin white Duke being this fascist aristocrat, is in America and he's trying to get back to Europe. Well, that's what the station to station song is. It's this progression of the thin white Duke kind of like 
releasing himself of all the crap that, that he's been and that he's been doing and he's back in Europe and he's free again. And that, and you, you know, you asked me about hunky dory, what type of album it was. This to me is a pop album. Um, ex- except for the first song being, you know, this kind of prog rock, kraut rock that goes into disco type of thing. I mean, golden years is, you know, the rumors he wrote it for Elvis. I can totally see Elvis singing that song. It's got a great groove. Wild is the wind is okay. Wild as the wind is a cover and it is a great song and it's one of his best performances. Okay. So there you go. Nice. At least for yeah. me. Didn't Johnny Mathis sing it for the movie? Yeah, yeah, and it was like a Johnny Mathis song. Right. Yeah, uh, Johnny Mathis is one of those those names that I go, oh yeah, Johnny Mathis. No idea. Like I have no real <laughs> point of reference to who that actually is. It's one of the American Johnnies. That that that. Is it maybe like saying Arthur Askey to an American? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> they all know who he is. Um, Emily, um, is, I mean, now we're going into, I mean, as Lyle said, this is a bit of a pop album, but also uh, he's bringing in some crap, some kraut rock. He's changing a little bit from the, the plastic soul, uh, of the previous albums. Um, how does this, how does this set with you this period? It's, it's really interesting that, um, like on the one hand, I, I totally, like, you're right. It is, it is a pop album in many ways, but it's not. I think similar to Nick, I, for some reason, I always, I always associate this with his Berlin period. And I think it, for some reason, it's, it's, it's the more crowdy sort of <laughs> tracks on this album. I think that stick with me. I mean, I love the, the, the title track. I just love how it's, you know, it's got all of those different segment to it, segments to it, you know, going from sort of just like the train noise to like that super heavy, purposeful, very crowdy section. And then the whole like last half of the song, all of a sudden it just out of nowhere, like erupts into this like amazing um, kind of almost anthemic. I just love that, but no, it's too late. That whole section yeah. um, in which he also says it's not the side effects of the cocaine, which I think is <laughs> hilarious because it probably is. But um, I just, I listened to that song the other night, right before I went to bed, I listened to that and I listened to a Melvin's cover of Station to Station as well, wow. which is also amazing. And I was just like, I can't go to bed now. Like I have to like, <laughs> dance down the apartment. Oh, like music, <laughs> <isn't it? laughs> so, so all the cocaine in the, in the making of the record was, there was so much that even by listening to Osmosis, it, it was yeah. <laughs> <laughs> why I love this album. <laughs> Safe way to take cocaine. <laughs> It's it's almost reminds me of the sort of stories you hear about people like Stephen King, like I think was it Cujo, like he was he was walking down the street and he saw a book by Steve, by himself in a bookshop. He went, I don't remember writing that. Oh, he was he'd been so drunk for years that he'd written several books and didn't <laughs> even remember them coming out. And oh, I thought you were going to say that was like the inspiration for writing the book that he'd seen a book <laughs> and that he thought I don't know. Uh, I mean, we've already established uh, that he just. Through, like cut up pieces of text and move them around. Um, well, and I think, if, I think if there's like a through line with all of this, the, the first albums, he's kind of singing about madness as a subject. Mm-hmm. And I feel like the last three albums, he actually is in the middle of madness. Mm-hmm. And then station to station, like he recognizes he has to get out of this. That's where he talks about word on a wing being this thing that he wrote just to to stave off all the evil you know that was around him and then when he talks about it's not the side effects of cocaine i thinking that it must be love 
like that to me is actually a hopeful line. Like he's like, maybe I am going to get out of all this and it's not just going to be this pharmaceutical joy, but, but there's something better out of this madness that I'm in right now. Uh, I would say it's amazing that he did get out of it. I mean, you read the stories about the recording of this album and it's not just his diet of cocaine and peppers and milk, but this whole thing of being like holed up in this mansion in LA and just living in this state of terror and, 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 you know, uh, there are witches and black candles and Egyptian artifacts and all of this craziness. Um, he, you know, he thought that uh, he was, you know, Jimmy Page was after him. I mean, all of this crazy paranoid stuff. First time I'm amazed he got such an incredible album out of that period. It reminds me of like reading about Sly and the Family Stone with There's a Riot going on. It's like, how the hell did they even make an album, let alone an incredible album that will, mm. was always remembered afterwards, uh, you know, with the amount of chaos that was going on just psychically for Bowie um, to be able to put this out and have these, you know, fascinating kind of explorations like, like the title track, but then also do something like Golden Years or TVC15, these sort of more pop oriented stuff as well. Like he still had enough of his senses to do that, even if he couldn't really remember doing it after, after the fact, I'm just, you know, it's just incredible that, that, he didn't go off the deep end and become some like Sid Barrett basket case after all of that. Yeah, that is the miracle. And I think, okay, and I think we've we've gone through a, a big ev evolution really over the last well, hour or so. How many years are we talking? Hmm? How many years are we talking between his debut record and where we are now? Uh, the first one was 67. I mean, so in terms of actual years, we're going from say 67 nah. to 76. I mean, it's not even no. 10 years but this is back in the day where you know the beatles would turn out 12 albums a week um, yeah. whereas now radiohead will turn up once every six years and go oh something's coming um <laughs> but i think there's been a massive evolution we've gone through poppy stuff guitar guitars came in uh we went through some sort of pop then suddenly we had ziggy stardust and then we got some plastic soul coming in ending sort of with the thin white duke we've, we've talked a little bit about some of the themes that have uh, on the, and the threads, either musically um, or thematically, that I've gone through. Um, lyrically, did anything really change dramatically like, in, in how the songs were put together? I mean, we talked a little bit about how he would cut up the the text, but was there a massive change in actually what he was singing or singing about? No? Okay, cut that. <laughs> well, no, I think it's hard. He, he has all of his influences and he pulls from them at different times. I mean, Young Americans is is like a Bruce Springsteen song. It's his version of a Bruce Springsteen song where some a young married couple, they don't know if they're going to make through with everything. But instead of like Born to Run and like, yeah, we're going to do it, Bowie's like, yeah, no, they're, they're probably screwed. <laughs> <laughs> That is almost a beautiful moment to sort of end, end this on. Um, thanks everyone who has been involved. Um, I really, we've had a great, this has been great. And I hope you've had as good a time uh, as Nick and I have uh, joining us on this. Uh, Emily, thank you ever so much. Uh, ben, brilliant. Uh, Lyle, thank you so much. Um, if you're listening at home and you are still with us, which of course you are, because this has been fantastic and probably the longest episode we've done with the music playlist as well. Um, join us for the next one where we are going to go 
through, through Berlin, through the 80s, through New Romantic period, electronic, drum and bass, and leading up to his sad demise. Um, thanks, everyone. Uh, Nick, thanks a lot. It's been a pleasure. Uh, and Lyle, thank you. Thank you. Ben? Thanks, it was a blast. Emily, thanks a lot. Thank you. And we'll see you all next time. That was Bowie Part 1, and somewhere in the making of it, we realised that we're going to need to make this one stretch over three episodes. So we'll see you for Parts 2 and 3. Thank you so much to our contributors, Ben Zimmer, Lyle Wagenek, and Emily Baldoni. That was one of the most enjoyable group discussions since we started doing this thing, and I hope they'll all be back for future podcasts. Thank you also to Ewan for chairing the discussions and editing the podcast. Thanks again to Jonathan Fisher for the theme music, and to you, the listener, for indulging us. It's all been worth it though, right? See you on the next one. I'm Nick Hilditch, Planet Earth is Blue, and there's nothing I can do.